Steve and I go back a long way. We started a magazine years ago, and uh, we didn't know whether we were going to be able to continue it or not. It wasn't growing very well. We had to fend it out of our own pocket. And we went down to the post office in the late, mid-60s, and there was a check for $1,000. And that was a lot of money back then. And it was from Steve's dad. He'd never met me. He had got a hold of the paper. And he says, thank God somebody is printing Sovereign Grace material. And that was my beginning of the association with an amazing family. Then we had the privilege of having Stephen in our congregation while he was in university up in Rochester. And he was a great blessing. Stole one of our young women. <laughs> took her away. <laughs> It, 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 to me, I don't know about you older people here, but to me, it is just so, so encouraging to see there's so many young men Amen. who got their heads screwed on right. They aren't cocky. They're scholars, but they're ordinary people. There used to be some people who said when John Riesinger and Tom Smith and two or three other people die, covenant theology will be forgotten. Little did they know. <laughs> Steve, come and preach to us. Well, it's great to be with you, and uh, John and I do go back, not only as a family, but uh, as he mentioned, my time in Rochester, New York, North Chile. When I came down from Canada, it was spelt C-H-I-L-I, -I, and I thought it was North Chile. <laughs> but I was quickly corrected by the natives and uh, enjoyed my time there at uh, Roberts Wesleyan College. People still this very day, they say, uh, are you Wesleyan? And I say, not at all. But uh, it was a great place to be. And um, glad to be with you, uh, to, with you today. Uh, and Blake, I uh, appreciate his, his word. Sorry I missed last night. Uh, we had in Louisville, I teach at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I've been there since 99. I teach in systematic theology. I love the discipline, but it has its controls and its problems as well. But uh, we'll defend the discipline, but uh, we do have to ground it in scripture. But uh, we had a lot of uh, bad weather over, as you probably experienced as well, particularly on the uh, East Coast here. It seems like you got uh, dumped in our global warming. And uh, you uh, had all kinds of snow. And uh, we missed a number of weeks of, of uh, days that turn into loss of week or two of school. So uh, on Mondays, I have classes, uh, two one-week classes that uh, basically cover your whole week for three hours at a shot from 8 to 2.30 or so on, uh, on, on Monday. And I just couldn't miss another week since we'd missed previous weeks. It was the last day of the semester. Uh, so uh, Blake and I skipped out yesterday afternoon, uh, drove here quickly. Um, so we're sorry I wasn't here yesterday, but glad to be with you today and tomorrow. And I trust that um, uh, what we think about this afternoon will be a blessing to you. Uh, it's difficult in the afternoon, isn't it, after lunch and everything else? So uh, we'll try to make this interesting. We'll go for about an hour, uh, take our break, and uh, then have some coffee, get some caffeine uh, fix in you. 
and, uh, and then come back. Now the title, um, the idea, the theme that we're looking at, uh, John said do something on infant baptism. Uh, I've, I've written on some of these issues, uh, a book that I uh, encourage you to buy. I don't get any royalties from it. The editors do because I'm just a lowly uh, chapter contributor. But uh, Tom Schreiner and Sean Wright's book on uh, believer's baptism, edited work, and so some of the things I say will be there if you can't catch everything I give uh, this afternoon. So we're going to look at uh, infant baptism. Infant baptism is a, is a great test case. Baptism is a great test case of theological viewpoints, and it's uh, really a test case for putting your whole Bible together and covenant relationships. And uh, so this is near and dear to Baptists, as well as Pado-Baptists, and particularly New Covenant people. We're going to uh, look at uh, infant baptism, it's called hermeneutics. We're going to, in the first session here, um, just introduce the subject as baptism is a test case, uh, then look at some hermeneutical issues. I didn't want to just talk about infant baptism. Uh, I wanted to think through, all right, how do we read scripture? How do we put the covenants together? I want to walk through the covenants, how I see this, them fitting together. It might be a little different than uh, how you might do it yourself, but in the end, they all point to the new covenant. And then come back after break and begin to look at, all right, what is this pedo infant covenantal argument for baptism and why it doesn't make sense of the scripture. Right? And so that's what we want to, uh, to do. Now, there's a lot of various test cases we can use for um, looking at uh, how to put the Bible together. Sabbath has already been mentioned uh, this morning is a great test case. What do you do with Sabbath? How does it fit with the Ten Commandments? How does that apply to us as believers today? Uh, that speaks of all of these covenantal relations. Uh, the issue of Israel church, uh, dispensational theology, covenant theology, wrestle with this. That's another test case. What's the nature of the covenant community, Israel? What's the nature of the church? How do these relate? Ultimately, the answer to that is dealing with covenantal shifts, covenantal relationships. Baptism is another way of wrestling with how the whole Bible fits together. Uh, particularly um, the issue of infant baptism but uh, believer baptism as well uh, builds on the fact of, of how do we understand old covenant circumcision to new covenant realities? How do we understand the nature of the covenant community itself, Israel? Is Israel the same as the church? Are there differences? What's the sort of continuity, discontinuity? The nature of the covenant signs, circumcision to baptism, are they the same? Are they different? Why and why not, right? So that uh, answering the baptism question, uh, looking at the baptismal divide, gets us at how to put the whole canon together. That's why, and you're probably well aware of this, when you talk with people who disagree on this issue, it's not one verse of the Bible that you're going to solve the issue. Uh, it's eventually putting text after text, uh, putting covenants together, looking at a whole argument. The same as with Sabbath and other of these issues as well. Sometimes people think they can resolve the issue by just simply quoting a passage. It just doesn't work that way and it's not that uh, simple. This also raises the issue of how we interpret scripture. Right? This leads to the area of, of hermeneutics. 
Uh, infant baptism has a unique way of putting the covenants together. It has a unique way of understanding typological relationships. That becomes important as well. Uh, it presupposes a certain way uh, that the covenants fit, and this is what we are disputing. We are saying, look, uh, we appreciate much of your theology, but at this point, we think you get it wrong. Right? And uh, in fact, I like to come back to the covenantal people and say, I don't think you're covenantal enough. Right? And they do not like that. Uh, some of the response to my chapter in that book has been very heated. Presbyterians uh, don't like what I have to say. But of course, this goes at the heart of their it's their whole theological system. So let's look at uh, the issue of reading scripture in our first uh, hour together, putting the Bible together, some important, I think, hermeneutical reflections, uh, then look at the biblical covenants, and then come back after break to, uh, to look at the covenantal arguments. So let's first think about some hermeneutical issues of putting our Bibles together, how we should approach scripture, how we should read uh, scripture. I'm going to give you a rule that uh, I teach uh, not only systematic theology, but they also have me teach hermeneutics at uh, the seminary as well. So I try to unpack this rule uh, for my students as well as uh, my Sunday school class, uh, churches that I'm in. And this is the rule that I think we should sort of think through for a few moments as we wrestle with how to read scripture. Right. And the rule is this, uh, we all want to be biblical. So in order to be biblical, we must read and apply scripture. Now, reading and applying is just hermeneutics, interpretation and application. We must read and apply scripture according to what scripture claims to be and according to what scripture actually is. Right? So in order to be biblical, to interpret the Bible correctly, we must read it and apply it according to what it claims to be and what it actually is in the sense of how it comes to us. Now let me think through what it claims to be. What does scripture claim to be? Well, it claims to be God's word written through human authors that is fully authoritative, infallible, inerrant. I mean, you can all lay out your doctrine of scripture here. What hermeneutical implication does this have? Well, it has to mean that there's an overall plan. It has to mean that there is an overall unity to all the diversity of Scripture. This is God's word. It's his plan from eternity past that is now brought to pass by his creation of the world, his governing of this world, leading it to its consummation, so that there's an overall unity, coherence to this word. It's fully authoritative. We sit under it. We don't sit over it. We don't look for a canon within a canon. We take the whole of the revelation. Now, that's pretty basic, but... Uh, Unfortunately, that has to be said today more and more in evangelical circles. Um, you also, uh, in terms of God's word written through human authors, we come to know God's intent. What does God teaching us here? Well, we come to know it through reading authors. We come to know it through, this is our doctrine of inspiration, we come to know it through what scripture says. Fred Zaspel last night looked at B.B. Warfield. I missed that, but B.B. Uh, Warfield's famous statement, what God says the Bible says. Right? What the Bible says, God says. Right? So that we don't try to come to God's understanding of this independent of the biblical author. Right? That's why we talk about a grammatical, historical, ultimately canonical exegesis. Uh, we then seek to understand what the author is communicating. That's something of the claim of Scripture. Scripture now, what is it? What is it? 
uh, how does it come to us? Well, it comes to us, and this is simply the idea that you're familiar with, the idea of progressive revelation. Right, it comes to us over time. It's obvious, but it's often forgotten. Redemption doesn't happen all at once. It happens to us step by step by step. God's plan unfolds. This is the whole mystery theme that the Apostle Paul lays out, right? Uh, mystery is a revelation concept. So that God's plan from eternity past uh, now works itself out over time. So as God redeems and brings about his plan, he reveals. We have in scripture a word act revelation. God's mighty actions that interpret those actions so that we have to pay careful attention to how that plan unfolds, the interpretive framework of that in terms of Bible's own interpretation of these things, so that we then understand God's mind and heart. We learn to think God's thoughts after him. Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke through the prophets many times, diverse ways, speaks of its repetitious, fragmentary, anticipatory, culminating in. The coming of Jesus Christ. There's a whole sense of redemptive history. There's a whole sense of unfolding of the plan of God now centered in Jesus Christ. We are always reading scripture in terms of before and after. Right? That's progressive revelation. What is it in its context? What comes, you know, how, what, what's that saying? What comes after? How does the after relate to before? Then putting the entire canon uh, together, and this is where I pick up from many others, uh, Edmund Clowney, Richard Lentz, others like this, I uh, say the three horizons of biblical interpretation. The three horizons of biblical interpretation, immediate context. This is the, this is the interpretive rules of interpretation corresponding to real estate, right? Three rules of real estate, location, 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 right? Three rules of biblical interpretation, Context, expanding context, and a larger context, right? The textual horizon is the immediate context. What are authors saying? What's God saying through those authors in the immediate context here? Epochal, various words that could describe this. That's the unfolding revelation, right? What's the larger context? How does this passage fit with what comes before? So there's a developing context. There's a developing revelation that's given to us. Canonical horizon in terms of the whole Bible. The Bible fits together this way. In fact, there's the Bible's own internal structures are given to you this way. If, you do not be th if you're not thinking about how texts fit with where they're placed in God's plan in terms of the overall canonical context, we're misreading scripture. We won't apply it correctly. Give you some examples of this that I won't uh, develop, but uh, they should be familiar to you. Paul's argument in Romans 4. His argument that Abraham is justified by grace through faith, Genesis 15, 6. His argument is that uh, Abraham stands as the example, the paradigm for Jew and Gentile. He makes his argument depend, uh, dependent on the fact that Genesis 15 precedes in Abraham's life Genesis 17. Genesis 17 is the institution of circumcision. He says Abraham is declared just prior to circumcision. And then eventually in Galatians 3, he makes a similar argument. The promise given to Abraham is prior to the giving of the law. All of that is built upon timelines. Right? Redemptive historical structures. 
so that you read Genesis 15. God is laying down something here that is not then overturned when you then have Genesis 17. Circumcision has its point. You have to then look at its context, its significance, but it's not overturning Genesis 15.6 because that which has comes prior. Right? So he's building his argument. If Genesis 15 was Genesis 18, his argument wouldn't work. The same is found in, as I say, Galatians 3. The law, the promise comes prior to the law. If the promise came after the law, it would make no sense. The same thing is found in Hebrews chapter 3, chapter 7 and 8. Uh, the whole argument for Christ as an order, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Uh, the whole promise of the new covenant. Why is the new covenant that which is greater than the old? Because it comes after. Right? It comes in Jeremiah's time long after the Old Covenant has already been put in place, which means then that you have to interpret the Old Covenant as temporary. That's the argument. So that you're now having to think, all right, where do these passages fit in terms of an unfolding plan? The canonical horizon, right, putting it eventually in terms of the whole. The glue that holds the canon together. A lot of things hold it together. Uh, Some of the major themes, promise fulfillment, fulfillment themes. You've already heard some of that. Uh, with Blake, fulfillment, uh, fulfillment in Matthew, fulfillment really in the New Testament, that to which it points. There's, a, there's an unfolding revelation pointing beyond itself. God is teaching, he's leading, he's directing. Promise fulfillment picks that up. Typological structures, the debate with infant Baptists, the debate with dispensationalists, is over issues of typology. Everyone wants to appeal to a topology except at their prized point of their system. My contention is that dispensationalists and covenant theology follow a similar hermeneutic at certain points. They're strange bedfellows. The covenant theologian will take what they treat as the genealogical principle to you and your children, and they will say this is non-typological. It continues the same throughout, all the way through Israel, through the church, and whatnot. Dispensationalists do the same thing with land. The land is not typological. Right? It is that which continues throughout, will ultimately be fulfilled in the millennium through to the nation of Israel. Well, we just have to then wrestle with, uh, is the genealogical principle typological? Uh, is the land typological? Is it pointing forward to something greater, or is it then fulfilled in, in a kind of specific literal way? The nature of topology is crucial here. As you work through the canon, there's all kinds of various types, patterns, structures that are laid down. Not everything in scripture is typological. Uh, there's a new fad in evangelical circles that are treating everything as typological. Well, as the old saying has been with miracles, if everything's a miracle, nothing's a miracle. Right? If having a baby is a miracle, then what's normal then? Right? Uh, if everything is typological, then what is not typological then? I mean, how do you then decide what's unique? Right? So we want to then have textual warrants for typology. And as you move, typology, I would argue, is a subset of predictive prophecy. It's an indirect form. It is laying down structures because God knows where the whole thing is going. Typology builds builds upon a sovereign conception of God who knows the end from the beginning. He knows that this is where it's going. He knows that this pattern that's laid down is going to get you there. And he now sovereignly brings that pattern to pass. 
And so typology now requires, not everyone can hold a typology. Uh, if you look at different opinions, sometimes it's tied to their entire different views of God. So that as you have typological structures, persons, events, institutions, you have the type laid down leading to the anti-type. As you move from type to anti-type, I would argue that there are little installments of these types. Right? So you have little atoms show up. Atoms a type, but you have all kinds of little atoms show up. Part of this is work through the covenants. You also have priests, a whole institution, but you've got all kinds of little priests that ultimately culminate in the great high priest. You have David and his sons, but you've got all kinds of little kings that ultimately culminate in the great king to come. You have the sacrificial system culminating in the one who offers himself. And you can think of this in terms of events, exodus event. Eventually leads, as you work intercanonically, intertextually through the Old Testament, you have the idea that there's a new exodus to come. And that is fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ. All typological patterns find their fulfillment I would argue, in Jesus Christ, right? So that we might, the church might be a kind of type of Israel, but not directly. Right? It's Christ, it's, it's Israel to Christ to us. It's always the pattern. It's Exodus, the redemption, to the one who brings, you know, this anticipation of a new Exodus to Christ and his redemptive work, right? We really make a mistake if we miss the Christological fulfillment. Now, of course, uh, I'm going to criticize covenant theology on this point. Uh, they do want to see Christological fulfillment except at their prize spot. Right? And that's the problem. Right? So you have tabernacle, temple, sacrifice, uh, these kind of things. And you always move to lesser to greater. As you move across redemptive history, sometimes you, you, people talk about uh, uh, you, move from, um, uh, you, you, know, you move from Adam to Christ. There's a kind of increase. That's not, I, don't, I, I say that's not correct anymore. As you move from, say, Adam to Christ, what you do is you have a horizontal flat line here. You have uh, little atoms show up, but as you come to Christ, you then have escalation. There's a story being told through these patterns that you've got sacrifice after sacrifice, sacrifice, but then you've got the final sacrifice. You've got little atoms and little Davids and little priests and little kings, and then you have the final one. So that's why you have massive discontinuity when you come to the New Testament. Massive fulfillment that has come. Something new has been brought to pass that the Old Testament anticipates step by step by step as you work from uh, old to new to lesser to greater. And the covenants is a crucial way that this storyline unfolds. It's a crucial, I mean, in some sense, the biblical covenants are part of that glue that hangs the whole canon together. Uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Peter Gentry, and I were, were trying to, to, uh, to get a book out uh, next year on kingdom through covenant and see how these covenants unfold and then lay out some of these things for the impact for uh, systematic theology. So there's something in terms of, of hermeneutics, right, in terms of interpretation. With that in mind, let's now approach the biblical covenants, walk through them briefly, and then we'll come back. I want to do sort of a positive presentation. This is how I would see the covenants fitting together. Um, people say, what do you call this? I'll call it New Covenant. I think that's what it is. Uh, at Southern Baptist Seminary, I call it Baptist theology. Right? Um, <laughs> they, they, like to, they like to hear that. Right? Um, uh, but it's, I don't put Southern Baptist theology. I just say Baptist theology. Right? All right, so here let's think of this in terms of the biblical covenants. Now, as I've said, the biblical covenants establish one of the central glue, the central frameworks for connecting the whole Bible together. Uh, Christians have wrestled with this relationship. Uh, 
I get frustrated when uh, people try to say something like this, which has happened in our chapel last fall. People will come along and say, you know, um, um, the debates that are going on in the book of Acts are so parallel to our debates in our local church. They held a Jerusalem council and they wrestled with whether we should, hey, should we let Gentiles into the church? And then that's the parallel to what kind of color of carpet should we have in our church? And you say, you don't get it. The church had to wrestle long and hard about the nature of fulfillment. I mean, you, you go through the New Testament, right? The Gospels, I mean, how Jesus is speaking of himself as the fulfillment. As the book of Acts lays out the, why do you have an Acts 10 and 11 repeated? Because the bringing in of the Gentiles was a total transformation in terms of the old, I mean, it's there in the Old Testament, but they did not expect the Gentiles to come in exactly this way. You have the Jerusalem Council wrestling with covenantal shifts. You have the Galatians, the Judaizers, trying to put people under the old covenant law, failing to understand how these covenants unfold. So, I mean, this is where the Bible and Christians have wrestled with this over and over again. In terms of these three horizons, context, 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 of reading the covenants, it's crucial that we treat each covenant in its own context. And then as we do that, we then look at what comes before it. How is this unfolding God's plan? How does it anticipate what comes later? And then, of course, putting the whole canon together in that way. It's important to speak about covenants, plural, not just covenant. So you have this strong sense of this plurality of covenants, yet there's a one unified plan that is unfolding. Covenants, I will then tie to Adam. Now, there's a whole dispute as to creation context. I think that there is something there that's going on. Noahic, Abrahamic, however you want it, old, Sinai, Mosaic, I mean, various names attached to it, Davidic, new covenant. And as you work through the progress of Revelation, they're telling us a story. They're governing the people's lives. They're leading us to Christ. Now, let's think just for a little bit in terms of, um, in terms of Adam. Right? Covenant theology has long, argued long and hard, and there's debate within it over, is there a covenant of works here? Right? And regardless of whether we want to use that phraseology, terminology, and whatnot, uh, I think that there is a covenantal context here. It's in a pre-fall situation. Genesis 3 introduces the fall. The word covenant is not used. So recent book, Paul Williamson's book on the covenants, says there is no covenant here. I don't know. How do you put together Adam Christ if there's no covenant here? How do you put together your whole Bible in that way? Well, exegetically, uh, I think Dumbrell and others have made a strong case, and my colleague has now said he's checked this twice, and he argues this is definitive. That uh, there are two different ways of speaking of covenants in terms of cutting covenants, establishing covenants. Uh, The language of cutting speaks about something that takes place for the first time. Establishing speaks of an ongoing covenant relationship that is already there. When you come to Genesis 16, 18, Genesis 9, when you have Noahic, the language of establish is there. It presupposes some kind of covenantal context already in place. I think the larger context of Genesis 1 and 2 also leads us to think in terms of a creation kind of covenantal context. Elements of 
sort of uh, suzerain or vassal lord arrangements, obedience, disobedience themes. Adam as the first man, certainly biologically, but as you work through the canon, he's more, and even in its context, he's more than just a biological head. He's a representative head. I mean, what do you do? You have to do justice to Romans 5 eventually, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, and even in the text, there's indicators where he is the one that even though Eve takes it, he's held responsible for it. The command is given to him. He's functioning as a represent, representational head, which I would argue is a, is a covenantal head. Even the language of image of God that applies to all of us, uh, image is very close to later themes of sonship. Now you have to be careful how you put this together. But sons of God take on a very strong functional note in scripture. Image of God takes on a strong functional note as well. Now, it's not to say that's all there is to image. We are the image, but the image are representation. We are little kings and queens. We stand in for God as his vice regents. And Adam is the one who picks this up. Uh, later in scripture, Luke chapter 3 in the genealogy, Adam, after all, is called a son of God. So sonship themes connect the Bible. We'll see this with Israel. We'll see this with David. We see it ultimately fulfilled in Christ. But there's that theme there. Psalm 8, later on in Scripture, will pick up the role of Adam in creation. That's quoted in Hebrews 2 and applied Christologically. But it picks up Adam's unique role, first Adam ultimately leading to last Adam. So there's all kinds of biblical theological justification, exegetical and also you know, in terms of larger themes that I would say there is some kind of covenant context here. And the whole Bible in terms of its larger structure is Adam Christ. It's not Noah Christ. It's Adam Christ. You have to get that down in terms of the major uh, point. Now why is the word covenant not used? I don't know. Uh, it's probably a pre-fall situation, speculation at this point. Uh, I'm not worried about that, uh, but I think there's solid ground to argue for this creational context. The goal of the covenant has to be understood in terms of the seventh day. This is where the Sabbath comes in. God enters into rest. Right? There's no marker morning and evening of that day. It's not the Sabbath in the sense of the Sabbath command. The Sabbath command is a type that looks back to this standard. So that God enters into relationship, enjoyment of his creation, which is disturbed in the fall, which part of salvation being achieved again is to get back rest. And that's clearly picked up in Hebrews. So that the Sabbath command later on looks back to creation, the standard, and anticipates future, an eschatological salvation rest that comes ultimately in Jesus Christ. I mean, how the, the canon is fitting together. Now, tied to the fall, um, Genesis 3.15 becomes crucial. Right? So Genesis 3.15 with the promise. The promise structures the entire canon as well in terms of the promise of redemption. Right? So, I mean, Abrahamic promise, as important as that is, built off of Genesis 3.15. Don't start your Bible in Genesis 12. You've got to start it in Genesis 1, 2, 3, and everything else. So that the promise, Genesis 3.15, Sends you across. God will provide a solution to the sin problem. He will send a seed of the woman who will crush the head of this one. And it's enigmatic. It's not fully developed. But as you work across the canon through the covenants, you see more and more definition given to who this seed of the woman is. And that's part of the covenantal structures. Now you come to Noah, Genesis 6 through 9. What is this? This is, a this is a creation context in terms of covenant. In its immediate context, it's now in a post-fall situation. 
Noah uncannily looks like Adam. Right? Uh, he's given the same mandates, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. I mean, you, you sort of like an echo back to uh, Genesis 1. You say, I've heard this before. Right? That's because Adam is the pattern, right? And then you have another installment of him. Noah functions in that way, except it's post-fall. The world is wiped away except one man and his family. And, of course, in light of Genesis 3.15, it's through Noah, his offspring, that the promise will now come to us. But it's certainly set within a creation kind of context. God's plan for creation will not be lost. Now, you have a narrowing focus through the nation of Israel to bring about this meeting. But as you come to Christ, you have all of that universal focus again. I'm not speaking of in terms of atonement, but I'm speaking of in terms of cosmic new creation themes that build off of the structures that are then tied to the early chapters of Genesis. So this creation context will be realized. Genesis 1 to 11 is crucial here. That's why when you make Genesis 1 to 11 myth and non-history, we're in serious trouble. So that the universal emphasis of this is not lost in the subsequent chapters. Abraham picks this up. Now he'll be the means by which this will be realized. And so you move then to the Abrahamic. Abrahamic covenant is one covenant, I would argue. Right? Uh, Williamson and others today now fragment it. They say there's two covenants, 15, 17, whatnot. I think this is a mistake. It's not reading the Abrahamic narrative properly, right? Genesis 12 is giving the promise. Genesis 15, the language of cutting is there, where the covenant is cut. Uh, Genesis 17, the circumcision is establishing, it's building off of the same covenant. Genesis 22 has important themes for us with Isaac. Now, the relationship of Abraham must be now, it's textual horizon. You have to look at Genesis 12, and it's all the Abrahamic narratives, but it's set within the context of what comes before. Genesis 1 to 11. So that this is the divine response to how Genesis 3.15 is going to be realized. Abraham, instead of wiping away the human race, he lets the human race live. Right, that's tied to Noah. He's going to take one nation, one man, one nation, uh, a seed through the nation of Israel out of the world. And through that, he is going to bring his promises uh, to pass. So Abraham and his seed. Sounds familiar, right, John? Uh, four seeds of Abraham, right? I mean, the Abraham and his seed become very, very important, connecting you back to the early chapters of Genesis and then driving us forward. Abraham, in this sense, is what I would argue constituting another Adam. He's given land. He never gets in that land, but he's given land. He's given this promise. What does this pick up? I mean, it's going back to Eden themes. It's going back to Adam. Adam's given land, and he's supposed to expand that land to the ends of the earth. He does a terrible job with it. gets booted out of the garden. Uh, you have to now sort of get him back in the land. You have to bring back the creation uh, mandate. Uh, you have to bring salvation, and Abraham becomes the means by which that is going to take place. Uh, so Abraham emerges from the structure of Genesis as the answer to the plight of mankind. He is the one through him and his offspring that will bring salvation to the world. You have the multiplication of humans. That picks up endemic themes. You'll be fruitful and multiply. Provision of land, peaceful relation with God, restoration of the nations. All of these are endemic themes. Israel is described in Genesis 12 as a great nation. I'll make you a great nation. The Hebrew there is goy. 
Usually the land, usually the language tied to Israel is, is, is the, the word people. Here it's the word goy that's picked up eventually in Exodus 19 as well. This, this, this language here is of a world community. It's a kind of political entity notion, a kind of kingdom notion. You don't have the theme of kingdom of God directly in the sense of the words in the Old Testament. The kingdom of God theme is everywhere. So that you have it tied to, to, to Adam, you have it tied to uh, the issue of Goy, so that in Abraham we have the recovery of the divine goal of creation, uh, bringing in of God's kingdom in this saving sense, and all of this will come through his offspring. And then you have to think through the offspring of Abraham. It's a little complex, isn't it? You have physical offspring, sons of Keturah, Ishmael, Isaac. You have Isaac as a unique one, you also have, as the seeds of Abraham are worked out, you have a typological sense of seed. Clearly, that's picked up in terms of Christ. And you have a spiritual. We are all children of Abraham. Now, that will become very important as you move across the covenants and will set us apart from infant baptists. Now, there's also, in this distinction, and this is where... Um, and I'm indebted to, uh, to my colleague Peter Gentry on this and, and some others. We, we've been a little bit frustrated as you look at covenant discussion where people sort of neatly package these covenants up and say, well, this covenant is grant or unconditional. This covenant is bilateral or conditional. This is law. This is gospel. I think we're mistaken on this. You see within these various covenants, unconditionality that continues. Unconditionality ultimately is tied to this theme of promise. All the way from Genesis 3.15, God will take the initiative. God will save. That runs right across the canon. You're not going to save yourself. Nothing will come from the human race in terms of initiation, desire. It will be God and God alone that will save. And that promise is, I will keep my promise regardless of you. You also have, though, this strong sense of obedience. You have this conditionality. I mean, certainly Adam is to obey. Noah is to obey. Abraham is to obey. Read Genesis 17, Genesis 22. Genesis 15, where we're all familiar with the pieces, the animals are set apart, the covenant is cut, they walk through the pieces, the only person that's walking through the pieces is God himself, Abraham's asleep, looks pretty unconditional. But you know, Genesis 17, obey. If you obey, this will happen. Genesis 22, because he offers Isaac, because you have done this, I will do then do this. Now there's tension created. I think you're supposed to let the tension sit. You're supposed to let this revelation unfold. The tension is there, and this I'll give you sort of the, uh, the, the short end of the story here, which moves into active and passive obedience of Christ. Right? The tension is, is that God creates us as image bearers. He wants us to obey. Right? We're to rest in him, believe him, carry out the creation mandate, be obedient. We are disobedient. He then demands of all his covenant mediators, obedience, 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 they all fail. And of course, that sets you up. There is going to have to come an obedient son. There's going to have to come an obedient son that is nothing less than the Lord who comes 
And that's how New Testament Christology works. He is the one who is God the Son incarnate, who fulfills the role of Adam, who fulfills the role of Abraham's seed, who fulfills the role of, of, of Israel, the true Israel, the true David. He is the Son who comes and obeys. And so you have his life and obedience to death. These themes are not minor. They are building off of Old Testament structures so that there is this sense in which I would want to argue that uh, there is conditionality, unconditionality built into the covenants until you come to Christ, who obeys for us. Now, covenant theology will often, um, Blake mentioned uh, divisions in covenant theology, Michael Horton and uh, uh, Meredith Klein and others, they'll say, well, Abrahamic unconditional, uh, new covenant unconditional, and then law or, or gospel, and then mosaic conditional and law gospel. You also have uh, Wilson, Doug Wilson and Randy Booth and these Federal Vision individuals that they will say all of the covenants are conditional and they pick up a lot of these unconditional passages. Well, I think some of them are right in certain areas and some of them are wrong in other areas and both is true of each one of them here. There's a sense in which we would say uh, there is, yes, obviously unconditionality, but that's tied to God and his promise and it builds on these covenant structures. Uh, there's also obedience through it, but the whole point of the area is that we don't obey. And we need one who is obedient. And the new covenant then is put in a different category because it's put in a different category because of the person who is the mediator of it, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, who obeys completely. Right? So there's some areas of, of, of themes that are tied to Abraham. Now, as we move to Sinai, Old Covenant, Mosaic Covenant, it's built on the back of the patriarchs. God says very, very clearly, Deuteronomy 7, 7, I, I, I didn't choose you because you're beautiful and you're great and you're, you're moral or anything else. I chose you because of my promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then why did he choose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Grace. You read the end of Joshua, Joshua 24, um, Abraham just wandering around as a pagan, uh, and God set his love upon him, right? So it's always a grace by which God chooses us. And the nation of Israel is built on the promises to the Abrahamic uh, covenant. As you relate the Sinai covenant to previous covenants, all right, it's built on the back of the Abrahamic. It's linked then back to Genesis 3.15. The nation then becomes, through Isaac, through Jacob, Israel, becomes the seed by which the promise now takes place. As I said, Exodus 19 picks up the idea of a holy nation. Goy is used, this kingdom, this, this entity that will then bring the Abrahamic covenant to pass, which ultimately ties back to Adam. They will fulfill the role of Adam in that sense. They are given a land, just like he's given Eden. They are to take care of it. They are to be obedient. They, when they aren't, out they go. Right? And they are exiled just as Adam was. The relationship of Israel to the Lord is a father-son relationship. Right? So before you get to father-son in the New Testament, you have it built in the Old Testament. You know, it's not just floating in midair here. It's built off of structures that are laid down. So that when you have Exodus 4, God says to Moses, you tell Pharaoh, you let my son go. Right? That's Picked up in Hosea 11 and other places. Out of Egypt I called my son. Israel is now viewed as the son. Why are they viewed as the son? Because they are to be the representatives of the Lord to the world. They are to be like Adam, like all of us should have been. Right? They are God's pilot project that, like Adam, they will be miserable failures uh, as they 
do not obey and as they are removed ultimately uh, from the land. So it goes back to Adam. It also, this father-son language will be picked up later in the Davidic covenant so that the Davidic king will eventually become the epitome of the nation will be the representative of the nation so that they will have this unique role which then picks up this theme of kingship and messianic thrust that moves through the Old Testament. Israel is called to be an obedient son. They are given the covenant. They are given the law. They disobey. And the curses of the covenant now come upon them. They have wicked hearts, unbelieving hearts. Now, other observations regarding the Old Covenant. Um, I think Blake mentioned this earlier. The Old Covenant must be viewed as an entire package. This moral civil ceremonial distinction must be abolished. It doesn't fit. It's a whole unit. You cannot read the canon, and you cannot read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and come up with this kind of artificial distinction. Hebrews 7.11 becomes very important. Blake quoted it. There you have the announcement of the priesthood. If perfection could have come from the priesthood, then you have that parenthesis. On the basis of it, the priesthood, the law is given. Automatically, the author of Hebrews views the priesthood and the law as one package. So that if there's a change of priesthood, the whole change of the covenant. I mean, they go hand in hand. So you have various uh, relation of the priesthood, the sacrificial system. You read Exodus. Exodus 20, the giving of the law. I just flip over in, in terms of Exodus. Just run through how the whole structure of Exodus works. Right? So that uh, God calls them out. The theme of uh, redemption is crucial. That becomes an entire pattern. It's important to not let covenant theology. I mean, the Israel's a redeemed people, but they're not like we're redeemed. Here's a political redemption. They're delivered from slavery. There's some spiritual uh, elements here to it as well, but primarily they're taken out of a physical captivity. They enter into covenant relationship. They're given the Ten Commandments. Uh, Moses functions as a mediator, and then he's receiving further instructions, chapter 21 through 23. The covenant is now cut. In chapter 24, blood is shed. Uh, uh, It's inaugurated in that way. And then you have then him departing up onto the mount. So from chapter 25 all the way to 31, he's up on the mount. The people are on the, uh, the, the bottom of the mount. And then you have the golden calf incident taking place. And you have the threatening, the covenant's already been broken. It has to be reestablished. God displays his grace, uh, that themes that are picked up in the prologue of John's gospel. And then after that covenant is established, you then have Sabbath regulations, chapter 35, the priesthood. I mean, this is all one package deal. And then you move into Leviticus, right? Leviticus is part of the covenant. It's part of the whole uh, institution of it. And then you have uh, Deuteronomy that's picking these things up as well. You have prophetic, the prophet is part of the covenant tied to Moses. And you have messianic themes linked to Deuteronomy 18. And a prophet like Moses, the kingship, goes back all the way to not only Adam, but to Genesis 17. Uh, Abraham will have kings that will come from him long before there's ever a Davidic king. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, when you get into land, you'll have a king. Right? Uh, eventually that's picked up with David, and it's already there in numbers. I mean, simply to say this is a whole package deal. It's a whole covenant that must be understood in its place in redemptive history, seeing what comes before it, looking at what comes after, and then seeing how does this unfold. Right? And then you have to also say that the old covenant is not only a package deal, but it's a means 
to a larger end. You must not treat, and I know you don't do this, but uh, the Judaizers did, and many people do, the Old Covenant is not an end in itself. That's the Judaizers' problem. To say Christ plus let's go back and put us under this treats the Old Covenant as an end in itself. It was never intended to be an end in itself. Right? It was a means to a larger end. So that the promise proceeded, think of Galatians 3, the old covenant is temporary, it unfolds God's plan, leading then to the coming of Jesus Christ. It points beyond itself. And when you then try to say, well, we need to go back under it, you simply fail to understand its place in redemptive history, you misunderstand it fundamentally. Now, when you come to the Davidic covenant, flip over to 2 Samuel 7. Here you have 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17. Here's the two places that you have the establishment of the Davidic covenant. Davidic covenant, I mean, it's so crucial to all of, you know, how the whole Bible fits together, New Testament Christology, the person and work of Jesus Christ. You have in this context here, uh, Abraham or David has, uh, has won uh, victory. He wants to build a permanent place for God, the whole temple theme tied to tabernacle, tied to God's presence, tied to rest themes. I mean, we could develop all of that, but those are major, major themes. Uh, he wants to build it, initially say, yes, go ahead. But then uh, God says to Nathan the prophet, no, not so fast. Uh, your son will be the builder, not you. But then he says here in verse 8, 2 Samuel 7, tell my servant David. My servant David is already a kind of advanced language on Moses. Numbers 12, my servant Moses. Now you have my servant David. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from following the flock, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you've gone. I have cut off all your enemies before you. That cutting off of the enemies, putting things under your feet already is, is uh, Psalm 8, Edemic themes. Now I will make your name great. Where have you heard that before? It's Abrahamic. Like the names of the greatest men of the earth, I will provide a place. I'll provide you a name. I'll provide you a place, a land. I will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning, ever done since the time. I will also give you rest. The Lord declares to you, I will establish a house, a dynasty for you. When your days are over and you rest with your forefathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. Obviously, here's Solomon in the first sense. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's forever language that's used in a number of places in scripture. I will be his father. He will be my son. Now, prior to this, it's Israel that's the son. Well, Israel's still the son in that sense. But the Davidic king now is taking on Abrahamic role. He is now taking on Israel. He becomes the representative of the nation. That's what the king was. The king was to represent Yahweh. He was to represent the nation. In some sense, he epitomizes Israel. And that's how the servant songs eventually move in Isaiah, right? Israel's the servant, but now you have the epitome of the servant found now in the king. So that he is the one who is, has his father-son relationship. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, 
whom I remove from before you, your house, your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So there's two elements of the Davidic covenant, establishment of Davidic house, this father-son relationship. Father-son picking up themes that have echoed back in terms of the Old Testament. You also have in this, David sees himself here not just as the petty king of Israel, because he's picking up Edemic themes that go back to Abraham, blessing to the nations. He views himself as through him and his offspring, through his kingdom, this will affect the entire world. How do we know this? Well, you keep reading. David turns to prayer in verse 18. David's amazed at this. King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O sovereign Lord? What is my family that you brought me this far? As if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you've also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Now I'm reading from NIV, and it then has a question. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? That's a poor translation. Walt Kaiser and others have said really what this is saying is not so much a question, but it's making this statement, this is the charter by which humanity shall be directed. So it's not just to, is this usual way a man knows, this is your plan through me to affect humanity. Where do you get in the branch of this altar and the prophets, this universal aspect of Messiah? Well, you get it right here. It comes over the Davidic covenant. The Davidic king will be the one who will fulfill the Abrahamic role, who will fill the Edemic role, that through the king, you will have one that will affect all of humanity. Right? It's, it's a seed thing. You will have the one who will ultimately bring God's rule and reign to this world. So you read Psalm 2, great messianic psalm, right? You have right out of the Davidic covenant, the Lord says, I'm going to install you on my holy hill. Uh, today I have declared, I am your father, you are my son. I give you the nations of the inheritance. You, the nations better bow to the king. Right. Psalm 72, you have the great, the Davidic king, it's a Solomon psalm, that the king will rule from sea to shining sea. It's a universal. Right? It comes right out of this. God has promised that he is the one, the Davidic king is the one who will bring, uh, will have a great name, he'll have a great land, he will bring God's rule and reign to this world. Now, that's a promise. You can say it's unconditional, and it is unconditional. God will keep it. Yet you also see in here this, this flogging element. Uh, when they disobey, there's obedience demanded uh, and, and whatnot. I mean, it's not as if the king isn't to obey. And in fact, in the history of the nation of Israel, they don't obey. Right? Uh, they eventually are cut off. Eventually, you read the end of the book of Chronicles, and you got the jolly old king uh, sitting in exile, and you think, what happened to all the promises of God? Right? Well, that creates tension in the Old Testament, doesn't it? That's what's supposed to be there. It's setting you up for, well, how is God going to fulfill all of his promises when the king, there is no Davidic king. In fact, Psalm 2, that great messianic psalm, by the time it's placed in the Psalter, the Psalter as a book has to be post-exilic, right? Because you've got Psalm 137, uh, they're, at the, they're at the streams of Babylon, right? So whenever it's collected as a book, you need to read the Psalter as a book, right? Psalm 2 is announcing the Davidic king who's going to rule over the nations, and there's no Davidic king. Right? That's part of expectation. That's part of the messianic anticipation. That's part of the messianic promise, 
So that if you go to an Isaiah 55, uh, my colleague uh, Peter Gentry has a very, very good article in um, uh, Westminster Theological Journal on this, and it's going to come out in, in, in the book that we're, we're working on here. There's a very, very disputed text here in terms of verse 3 of how to interpret this, and I think he's right on. Isaiah 55 is on the heels of the servant passage. Uh, the servant of the Lord who wins victory, uh, the effects of this on Zion and the world. You have that 55, come all you are thirsty, come to the waters, you who have no money, buy and eat, picked up in the book of Revelation. Verse 3, give ear, come to me, hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, new covenant language. And then I have in the NIV here, I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. The idea here is, I'll make an everlasting covenant, I'll keep my promise to David. Peter Gentry has shown that's not what the text says. If you actually look at the syntax, the grammar, it says something like this, I'll make an everlasting covenant with you because of the faithfulness performed by David. It's not speaking so much of the initial promise, that's true, but it's speaking of an obedience that David will bring about. Now you have to ask, who's this David he's talking about here? He's certainly not talking about the historic David, he's dead and gone. He's like uh, Peter says in Acts 2, you can go to his tomb over here and you can see David. Right? This has to be, and in the context of Isaiah, this is a messianic theme. There will be God establishing his everlasting covenant by the obedience of the Messiah. By this one who will finally be an obedient son. Adam, first son, disobedient. Noah, drunk very quickly. Abraham, good, the bad, and the ugly. Right? Uh, man, man of faith, but I mean a lot of... You know, things going on in his family. Uh, Israel, disaster, disaster, disaster. David, great as David may be, murderer, adulterer, everything else. All of the Davidic sons, failures. Where is there going to be a son who will obey? Where will be there one who will be an image? Image, Colossians 1 picks this language up. He's the true image in terms of God the Son, but he also takes on our humanity. He is the true image. He's the last Adam who will obey and win for us that of the new creation, pay for our sin, bring restoration. You see, there's, there's conditionality and unconditionality built into these things, which is telling a story. God must provide in order for there to be salvation, in order there to be a redeemer. Covenant mediators, whether they be Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses. Moses really functions as a kind of covenant mediator of the old. David and his sons, but David, all of them fail. But they point forward to a greater one to come. And in fact, that's the history of the nation. If you summarize eschatology, in terms of uh, you know very simplified form of Old Testament eschatology, it runs across two three as two themes. There's no hope for the nation. Uh, they have failed. Uh, they are booted out of their land. They have violated the covenant just like everyone prior to them. The Lord must save. That's the first theme. God must act. Salvation is of the Lord. Jonah two nine. Right. 
Uh, the Lord must may show his mighty arm. He must come. He must come to his temple. He must come and rescue his people. Ezekiel 34, that backdrop to John 10, the good shepherd passage in the New Testament. The Lord is just totally says the, the shepherds of Israel are failures. So I will come and I will rescue my flock. I will save my people. I, 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 I will do this. And that runs right through the prophets. And then you have tied to it, amazingly, I will do it through my king. I will do it through David. You say, well, what's going on here? The Lord and the king. The Lord and David. The one who epitomizes the nation, who epitomizes Abraham's seed, who epitomizes Adam. So that you have, say, our, our Christmas uh, song, you know, a, a famous passage, Isaiah 9. This one who comes as king. Isaiah 7, virgin born. Isaiah 9. He is the one wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Where is he going to sit? David's throne. Right? Ezekiel 34, you go later in that chapter. I will come, I will come, the Lord says, and I'll put over you, David. And you have these themes that come. So as you come to the New Testament, Janet Matthew 1 opens up in the genealogy. Son of Abraham, son of David. Everything is structured in the genealogy in terms of 14s, which is by Gematria, David's name, number, numerical number for his name. David, 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 David. Right? Here is the true David. Here is the greater than Solomon. And that's how ultimately the Gospels then present uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? So these covenants are you know, moving forward. Do not treat these covenants as just sort of isolated units, divorced from that which comes before, how they unfold in terms of what comes later. Now, where does it all go? It goes to the New Covenant. That's where it's all going. Uh, these covenants are unfolding a plan. Right? So that by the time you come to the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, uh, Ezekiel passages, uh, Isaiah 54, Isaiah 40 through 66, I mean, all of the Old Testament is moving towards this anticipation of God doing something greater, built off all the other previous covenants, right? So turn to Jeremiah 31. Just make a couple comments here as we draw this first part uh, to a close. Jeremiah 31. Uh, picked up, obviously, in the New Testament, a number of places. Uh, Jesus picks it up at uh, um, the night he's betrayed, this Passover celebration, Lord's Supper, uh, Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 10. But here you have, and, and, there's, and this isn't the only new covenant passage, right? I mean, you, when you have covenant of peace, you have everlasting covenant. This is new covenant. I mean, all of them are, are building off new covenant themes. Everything in terms of the plan is looking forward to a future. Right? Now, it begins in verse 29. Uh, and even before there, you have, uh, in, read earlier in 31, Exodus themes, chapter uh, verse 21 and following. You have rest themes uh, that Jesus picks up in uh, Matthew 11, verse 25. I will refresh the weary, satisfy the faint, I'll give you rest. Uh, you also have it, uh, verse 29, in those days, people will no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for his own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. The time is coming, declares the Lord. Uh, Don Carson and others have pointed out, and I think they're exactly right. Verse 29 and 30 is a kind of preamble to the, to the, old, the new covenant promise. There's, there's something that's changing here. These covenants have been unfolding, but now there's an anticipation of culmination. Uh, this proverb was picked up in a number of places, but in this context here, it's speaking of structural changes to the covenant. 
The old covenant is a mediated covenant. You go through prophets to hear the word of the Lord. You go through priests to have your uh, sins dealt with. You go through the king for the rule and reign of Yahweh in, in your life. Uh, but here the fathers now uh, I mean, are being overturned. Uh, the fathers, when they do wrong, the children pay for it. But now there's something changing here. Structurally, this is not going to be mediated by prophet, priest, and king. It's going to all be mediated through a new covenant head, a new mediator, and then it opens up to implications for us as the people of God. He then begins in, or, or verse 31 continues, the time is coming, declares the Lord, I'll, I'll make a new covenant. I'll make it with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Older dispensationalists used to say here that, well, you know, you have a sort of installment for the, the nation of Israel and then maybe some application to the church. Uh, here in the New Testament, it's clearly picked up and applied to Christ and the church. Right? So you have some kind of typological relation between Israel and church, but we have to do it, I think, through Christ. You have the house of Israel, the house of Judah. It will not be like, so there's a whole debate on whether this new covenant is just a renewal well, text looks like it's not just a renewal. It looks like there's something new here. Uh, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers. When I took them out of the hand out of Egypt, they broke my covenant. I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. And again, you know, the house of the old covenant it's referring to here often also has to be put in context with everything that's preceded it, right? The role of Israel, the importance of the old covenant. He says, this is the covenant I will make. I will put my law on their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. I mean, that's covenant language, God, people. But you have here, tied to the structural changes, I mean, there's also scope changes. Sometimes people talk about nature changes that are taking place here. The old covenant was comprised of believers, unbelievers. I mean, most of them died in the wilderness before they even got to the promised land and then the whole history of the nation. But this covenant here, you will have uh, one that has the law written on the minds and hearts, an Ezekiel 36 kind of image tied to this giving of the spirit. I mean, a lot of themes that connect here. So that it's speaking of a people who know God directly, uh, people who know God in a, in a way that is a saving way. I mean, even you know, Richard Pratt, who's a covenant theologian, has to admit that this is speaking of some kind of saving uh, change and the uniqueness of this, this new covenant promise. So that uh, no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man, his brother, saying, know the Lord. In the Old Testament, you had to go to the prophet to, to hear the word of the Lord. But we will all know the Lord. This is picked up in the New Testament. Uh, we're all teachers. Now, it doesn't mean that there's no role for teachers in the church, but we're regenerate. We know God. We all have his spirit. I mean, there's some major changes here. So that we will all know from the least to the greatest, for. This is the heart of the new covenant. I mean, it's, usually we talk about regeneration and we talk about uh, full knowledge of God. But what's at the heart of this new covenant? Well, for grounds it. And you have to put this in the context of all that's come previously. I will forgive their wickedness. I will remember their sins no more. What is this promising? It's promising full atonement. It's probably when God you know, says, I will remember their sins no more, he doesn't have amnesia. Right? Uh, he's saying sin is going to be put away. Now put that in terms of the old covenant. What do you got? Read Hebrews. Sacrificial system. I just went through my Sunday school class over the last three months through Leviticus. Great study. Over and over and over again. I mean, there's a sense in which the Old Covenant provided forgiveness. 
never permanently. It was never intended to. Oh, yes, they walked by faith. They believed the promises of God. They were to, you know, carry, to bring their sacrifice, and there was a mechanism for dealing with their uncleanness. But if you think that was an end in itself, you just fundamentally misunderstood it. So that you come day by day by day by day, and you've got to keep coming back. The Day of Atonement, year after year after year, and then you've got this priest. He's got the problem, too. Yeah. Right? And, and, you know, it just never ends, and then you've got everything of your life is regulated, clean, unclean. You think, I mean, eventually, as you work through the prophets, right? I mean, why do the prophets pick up and say, uh, you know what, God really doesn't want your sacrifices. Now, it's not that he's saying don't do the sacrificial system. That was given by God, but it was to teach them. It was to point them forward. Leviticus 17, 11, I've given this to you because in order for you to be right with me, there needs to be blood atonement. There needs to be forgiveness of sins. I must provide that. And if you think this is going to be it, you're really dull. And, of course, that's what's going on here. And particularly by the time you get to Jeremiah 31, at least by this time, they should have been saying, you know what? This whole old covenant is coming to an end. Because, you know what? This is like Romans 3.21. The righteousness of God will come apart from that law covenant. If you think that that law covenant is going to bring the righteousness of God, you can keep offering your sacrifice, but you'll never be cleansed of your sin. It was never intended to do that. What is necessary is that the law point forward to this, but there needs to come a day when there will be a full atonement for sin, there will be God's own provision, and there's where you have suffering servant, the one who will lay down his life, all put in sacrificial imagery. God must provide his son. God must provide the king. God must provide the Passover lamb. All these themes that run through. God must provide a new covenant that will bring the full forgiveness of sins. You will then be brought into relationship with God by which you then know the Lord. You are a regenerate people. You are united to this covenant head, and you're a believer. That's what's being anticipated here, isn't it? Now, there, you put together other passages as well. There's a national, international sense to this. This isn't just... Uh, for the nation of Israel. It goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. It goes back all the way to Adam. The nations will come in. That's already in the Old Testament. Now, it took a while to figure out the exact relation of the Gentiles to the Jew, but that's there. And you also have this uh, anticipating new creation realities. I mean, a whole host of things. But the whole Old Testament is moving towards this point so that as you come to the New Testament, what's the New Testament say? The new covenant's dawned. Christ has now come. He's this last Adam. He's the head of the new creation, thankfully. All human beings are either in Adam, or you've got to get in Christ. He brings the new creation. His very conception is presented in Matthew, particularly Luke, as the dawning of the new creation. Right? It's that which is produced in Mary God. It's the spirit hovering over. You have the inauguration of the new age tied to the new covenant. You have Christ announcing the coming of the kingdom. He is that to which the Old Testament points. That's why you can stand up in Matthew 5 and say, yes, you got the Old Testament law and you got the Old Testament revelation. All of it is of me, yet it all is pointing to me. 
Right? I am that which not only interprets it, applies it, but it's all now seen in light of who I am, what I have brought. He is the one who goes to the cross, brings by his death a new covenant. The blood of his cross is interpreted by him as Jeremiah 31. This is the blood of the new covenant. His resurrection brings the first fruits of a whole new order. Everything is moving to him so that all of these covenant mediators anticipate him. They look forward to him, all of the patterns, structures, types, the storyline of the Bible look forward, but it's an end road in him. And this is why Paul can say to the Judaizers, what on earth are you doing going back to this old covenant when the old covenant is driving you forward to him? Right? So that when you go back to him or back to the old covenant, you've died Christ. Because now all that has been looking for, faith, Christ, all of these things have now come so that to think that you're going to go back to the types and shadows of the old, you fundamentally misunderstand them. And the problem is, why do you misunderstand them? Because you fundamentally misunderstand your human heart. The, way, the only reason you could think that you could go back to the old system is because you don't think that you're a sinner. You don't think that you need this one to stand in your place to fulfill all of that. I mean, ultimately, it's a human heart problem to think that somehow by just simply offering your lamb or being circumcised or carrying out some of these uh, procedures, you, just, you don't understand what's necessary to bring about your salvation. And so there's where the new covenant is moving in this fashion. So as you work across the canon, that's sort of, I think, how these covenants unfold. You're always moving in terms of the unified plan of God that is unfolding. It's becoming more clear. By the time you get to the prophets, I mean, this, why does Jesus say in, in Luke 24, oh, foolish, slow heart to believe. Now, of course, 2020 hindsight is easy for us, right? But, I mean, he, he does say, you should have known. Right? Nicodemus, you're Israel's teacher? What have you been reading all your life? Don't you know how to put this thing together? Now, of course, it's the human heart, it's the blindness, the veil has to be removed, but it's there. Right? And as you move across the plan, these covenants are unfolding story. They're, they're governing the relationship of those people there, yes, but they're not isolated covenants. They, they're interlocking. Right? And, and, and the problem is, is that when you just sort of just flatten them all out, you miss the plan. You miss how they're being those that lead us to Christ. You're moving, you're missing the lesser to the greater, the promise to fulfillment. So that, yes, you start with Adam, Abraham now funnels it down through one nation and family, and it ultimately now culminates in Jesus Christ. And as you move across those covenants, particularly as you come to the new covenant, there's some massive, massive changes. And uh, ultimately, they're setting us up for, in terms of the Old Testament, the need for an obedient son. And where are you going to find one? And God says, there's my beloved son. He will obey. Right? He will face temptation, not in a paradise, but Mark says with animals, wild animals around. What's going on here? This is a fallen world, but he will face temptation perfectly. He will be like Israel, who will not disobey. He, in Romans 5, by his obedience, life too, not just his death that's obedient. His whole life is acting for us. 
He is our representative. He is doing what we cannot do. So that over and over and over again, these covenant mediators, the nation of Israel, show that by our human hearts, we can't keep God's standards, his law. He puts them in place. They, in some sense, you could say he, he graciously gives us to them and they fall flat because they can't keep it. We need this one to come transform us, to pour out the spirit, to give all that is anticipated, which is now ours. Sometimes people uh, think that, well, you know, you hold to a new covenant kind of notion. Uh, you, you have sort of a less of a demand upon you in the New Testament. Well, there's a sense in which everything's moving towards us. I mean, our whole life now is to be lived in such a way that we not only have the power, I mean, we're, we have to wait glorification, but we now live out, in some sense, the beginning of the new creation now. That's how New Testament ethics works, isn't it? The new creation is dawned. We begin to live it out now in light of union with Christ and all that's happened so that uh, we begin to live out what the whole Old Testament, the whole covenantal structures were pointing forward to. Right? Now, that's how I think the covenants fit together. And when we come back uh, after break to look at covenant theology, it, 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 now, again, you know, maybe I'm the only one with this opinion. I'm sure I'm, you have this opinion as well, but... You know, I mean, I, I love my uh, Pado Baptist brethren and, and uh, you know, love Reformed theology and everything else. But I think they fundamentally get it so wrong here that this is an important issue. And uh, the Baptist issue, not that I'm just, you know, Baptist with a big B or something like this. Um, you know, I'm Christian with a big C. Uh, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm also very concerned that uh, this issue is not a minor issue. I mean, this, this, the way they put together things just fundamentally doesn't put their Bible together properly. And they, for years, have said, we have all the answers on this. And I think humbly we have to say, I think you missed it. I think you missed it. Uh, you've been too indebted to a whole host of other things, and uh, we need to uh, really rethink this, right, and uh, question whether you do have it, uh, so that the exegesis, the whole canonical presentation, do they, can they make sense of this? Right? And I uh, come back afterwards and say they can't. Right? So there's the first area, uh, five minutes over, um, but uh, we'll have our break, right, and then we'll come back. Uh, lay out just briefly their argument and show it a few points where, in light of what I've just laid out, why I think fundamentally they get it wrong.